Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and we have only two meetings remaining in the year of 2018. It's been an amazing semester. We've been fortunate to meet so many wonderful medical, dental, and healthcare students this uh, semester, and we look forward to the next semester. We'll start back up in the first week of January of 2019. But for tonight, we have Dr. David Flatt bringing us a lesson in our The Story series, and this is going to be in the Old Testament. And this is going to be the second part. It's going to be on the books of Exodus and Leviticus. And so we'll be spending three total weeks on the Torah. We did last week the entire book of Genesis, all 50 chapters, and then tonight we'll be doing Exodus and Leviticus. And then next week I'll be wrapping up with a look at Numbers and Deuteronomy. From there we'll move on into a lot more. Of course, the Old Testament is 39 books, and so there's a lot to get through. I really look forward to uh, working through those books together. I think we too often ignore the Old Testament, and there is so much beauty and truth and wisdom to be found inside of it. So tonight, David, again, with Exodus and Leviticus, let's go to him now. All right, so um, thank you guys for coming tonight. We are uh, pressing on with our series on the story. So the idea is in 12 lessons, we'll go all the way through the Bible. So we'll spend... Ten or nine lessons in the Old Testament and then three in the New Testament. So it's about how, if you count your pages in the Bible, that's about right. 75% Old Testament. So um, at the end of the year, you I think everyone who kind of comes to Bible study will have a feel for what is the story of the Bible and how does uh, Jesus fit in, our faith fit in. I think it's almost impossible to understand the Bible without understanding the Exodus. So we can't like, you know, we got... 30 minutes or whatever, so we obviously can't go like chapter and verse all the way through, so maybe we'll spend some time on some kind of big themes, but um, it's a real important story. So I think the first thing I want to say is the Bible tells a continuous story, and then maybe let's briefly just talk about Genesis. Uh, Kyle did such a good job, I don't have a whole lot to say, but uh, maybe just added my two cents. I think the way that science and scripture fits together in Genesis is a huge topic. I know there's like some conversation after Bible study just about <clears throat> well, where does evolution fit in and how old's the earth and what you know how, what do you make of the genealogies and so I think all those are important questions and I think those are conversations we can continue to have. I, I think Kyle made a point which I just would want to like reemphasize is that I don't think the answers to those questions matter that much but I think they're fun conversations to have so you can keep having them but if you if somebody me or like bring the final scientific evidence and say this confirms 100% the truth of evolution that wouldn't change a single theological belief I have about anything so if I have any kind of arguments with evolution they're all um, scientific not theological so I'm perfectly content um, for evolution to fit in to my theology and so I kind of think as Christians we can be like really open-minded I'm willing to kind of follow the evidence wherever it leads um, of course, if you're a naturalist, you can't really do that, right? So if the evidence kind of leads into a, a supernatural direction or kind of leaves something open for the divine, well, that, that can't be true. So you're kind of forced to um, make natural selection by random mutation. That's the only explanation for natural life. And so we have we have some different options. So I think that's cool. So I just want to say, like, I don't think there's anything to be scared about. I think we can feel free to be open-minded about scientific questions when we think about Genesis. Okay, so if we're going to think about um, 
the Bible, we want to understand it as a story. I don't think you can do that without starting with Abraham. So we talked about the first 11 chapters of Genesis I think are awesome. In some ways, my favorite part of the whole Bible. But they're a little weird, right? And so, you know, how much allegory is in there? How much, you know, genre of... Um, literature, I think that's kind of there's some open questions, but there's a, a huge turn in Genesis 12, and so God makes this promise to Abraham, and in some ways the rest of the Bible is God trying to fulfill that promise. And so when we talk about Exodus, especially, uh, God's really kind of working on that story. So Exodus, you cannot read Exodus apart from Genesis and kind of make sense of what's going on, which is what we tend to do with the Bible all the time, right? We say let's read First Corinthians 13, or let's read. Um, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you to declare. And so you think, like, that's so encouraging, but that if you read the Bible that way, you kind of miss the whole point. And so that's really what we're trying to do in these 12 weeks is a, what is the point of the whole story? How's it fit together? So you got the patriarchs. you got Abraham, who's got his two sons, Ishmael, and then Isaac. And then Isaac has his two sons, Jacob and Esau. And um, Jacob's like this horrible person, right? But he ends up getting the blessing. And then Jacob has his, I guess... 12 sons, and Joseph is his favorite son, his 11th son. And uh, from those sons come the 12 tribes of Israel. They um, move. They There's this famine. They all move to Egypt where Joseph, God has um, set up in his providence this opportunity for their sin against Joseph to, be, um, to bring good to his family. And so they get... Um, get food, and they move to Egypt, and during the famine, they're spared. And so then kind of the, the story closes on 400 years, and I guess presumably the spirit is kind of quiet for 400 years, and the family of Abraham um, goes into slavery. Verse 2, like this Pharaoh comes power who doesn't know uh, Joseph, and he's scared about this immigrant people who've grown in number, and he enslaves them and makes them build City. So that's kind of where Exodus picks up. So Exodus is a story, if you were to talk about like a literary myth, I think it has like all the components, like your high school English teacher would say, this is what makes a great story. So there's, there's a cruel villain, there's an unlikely hero, that's your blank. There's overwhelming disasters, there's a spectacular deliverance, there's a long journey, there's a mountaintop experience, and there's a grand finale. So that sounds like Lord of the Rings, right? Like it's like, it's got everything that you want in a great story. And so we'll spend some time on each of those things, but obviously not a lot on each. So all that being said, I th- I'm going to be quiet for a second, and we're going to watch um, the video. So like we talked about, the, um, the let me get this right. All right, here's the video. Well, it was. Years pass, and the story of the 
Now that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of Israel's exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here, Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden <coughs> Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart was hard. He's doing this. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all of these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he's lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happens next. With the final plague, it's the night of Passover, and God turns the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, so God will kill the firstborn in Egypt with a final plague. But unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the lamb. 
And here the story stops and introduces us in detail to the annual Israelite ritual of Passover. On the night before Israel left Egypt, they sacrificed a young spotless lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe of their house. And when the divine plague came over Egypt, the houses covered with the blood of the lamb were passed over and the sun spared. And so every year since, the Israelites have reenacted that night to remember and to celebrate God's justice and his mercy. But Pharaoh, because of his pride and rebellion, he loses his own sons, and he's compelled to finally let the Israelites go free. And so the Israelite slaves make their exodus from Egypt. But no sooner do they leave that Pharaoh changes his mind, and he gathers his army and chases after the Israelites for a final showdown. As the Israelites pass through the waters of the sea safely, Pharaoh charges towards his own destruction. The Exodus story concludes with the first song of praise in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea. And the final line declares that the Lord reigns as king. And then the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in this world and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God is going to bring his people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. So after the Israelites sing their song, the story takes a sharp turn. The Israelites are trekking through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, and they're hungry, they're thirsty, and they start criticizing Moses and God for even rescuing them. They say they long for the good old days in Egypt. I mean, it's crazy. So God graciously provides food and water for Israel in the wilderness, but these stories, they cast a dark shadow. And we begin to wonder, could it be that Israel's heart is just as hard as Pharaoh's? We shall see. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Exodus. All right, so obviously a ton of material there. We're not going to cover <coughs> each story or even um, the main point of each story, but... Here's kind of a basic outline of the first 18 chapters of Exodus. So <clears throat> you've got Israel and Egypt, and that's kind of what we talked about briefly. So how do they get there? Now they're there. Now they're slaves. There's like two million of them. Once they're there, then Moses, kind of this, um, you know, weird. He was an Egyptian, becomes an Egyptian prince, but he's really an Israelite, and so kind of his calling. And then Moses and Aaron kind of team up. Then you get the ten plagues, then you get Exodus. They're all getting out. And they wander in the wilderness. That's kind of the first 18 chapters of Exodus. I want to make a, a few points, but I think the most important point is to see Exodus in the context of Genesis. So we're talking about Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. So you could really do a whole <coughs> Bible study that was centered around just the, these three verses. So let me read them, and then I'll kind of make the point I'm trying to make. So this, of course, is right at the turn from kind of the... Uh, 1 through 11 stories in Genesis and then God picks this guy out of the desert Abram it doesn't seem like there's anything special about him and he says this to him he said now the Lord said to Abram go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth you shall be blessed. So I think you look here at this verse, and God's doing really three things with Abram. He's promising him three things. The first is that he promises Abraham a great nation. So he promises him offspring. 
So family becomes, Abraham's family becomes a large tribe as a result of God's blessing. He also promises him land. So the promise of land is held before Israel as a place of provision that is flowing with milk and honey. And then God promises his blessing. So God's plan is to bless the world through Abraham's line, and it includes Israel's deliverance and their formation as a kingdom of priests and holy nations. So you even think about um, how we think about God's provision today and how the nation of Israel thinks of themselves today. These are still three you know, central, huge biblical concepts. Your, your offspring, your land, and then God's blessing on your life. And I think those are all things, of course, are important to Israel, but we, you know, Israel is part of our faith family, so they should be important to us too. So how, how do we view our role as caring for the offspring God gives us? How do we, we view our role as, as caring for the land or the, the space that God's planted us? And then what do we do with God's blessing on our lives? And so God bless Israel not for Israel's sake, but for Israel to be a holy nation, this kingdom of priests that would then would be a light to the rest of the nations. And that's all beginning to happen in Exodus. So, of course, if Israel's still enslaved in Egypt, you know these blessings aren't possible. So a big part of the fulfillment of these promises to Abraham was Israel's deliverance out of Egypt, into the desert, and into something greater. So the next point I want to make is about the ten plagues. And so I think this is a very... Um, this is a point that to the modern mind is kind of uncomfortable, but it's an important biblical point. And it's that the ten plagues demonstrate God's power over all creation. So God is not just um, like this awesome psychiatrist that like knows the or this great friend that knows like the wise counsel, here's how to live your life well, here's seven steps to health and wealth or you know God is the God over creation and he controls and dominates creation as he desires and wills. And so obviously this isn't the normal turn of events, right? The, the Israelites were in Egypt for 400 years before anything happened. I think in our life we could probably expect to to live our life and not see some kind of you know, astounding, you know, flash of light type miracle. But but the God that we worship, the God of the Bible, has the power over creation to will it to His ends as He sees appropriate. And this, of course, was a very appropriate time. It's really when you see miracles, you don't see, people think, oh, why don't miracles happen like they did in the Bible? And I understand the question. It's a good question. But ought to be pointing out, miracles weren't just like happening every day in the Bible, right? There was these huge spans of time where there's not a lot of miracles, but centered around these events that are really important in salvation history, you see these like flurry of miracles. So the Exodus, God's people need to be delivered from slavery so that they can fulfill Abraham's promise. Or the times of the prophets when God's people need to be restored into uh, believing and behaving and keeping their side of the covenant. And then of course the life and ministry of Jesus. But huge, like hundreds of years of uh, the history of God working in the world, it's not like a, it's not a magic show, right? Um, but God does have power over creation. And then probably the most important thing to say about the Exodus story is that God's people were given redemption through the offering of a spotless lamb as a sacrificial substitute. We can talk a lot about each one of those words, but I think you know we're all smart and can can read that sentence and can see kind of the obvious allegory. Um, but it's not an accident that the spotless lamb was given and his blood given for the redemption 
of um, God's people. And of course, we see that, that story mirrored in, in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus makes a connection when he's celebrating um, the Last Supper with his disciples. He's celebrating this meal, God passing over um, the firstborn as he's fixing to give his blood so that God would pass over our sins. And there's a really cool verse here in Revelation, which is maybe if Genesis isn't my favorite book and Romans isn't, then maybe Revelation is. <clears throat> and we'll talk about that in several weeks. But Revelation 5, verses 6 through 10. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth forever. So this idea of a lamb giving his blood for God's people to redeem us is really from the very beginning all the way through the end of Revelation. Which brings me to our first discussion question tonight. How is the story of the Exodus meaningful for the people of God today? Or is it meaningful? I think that's a reasonable answer. It happened a long time ago. It's people I didn't know. It doesn't really matter to me. Or is there a meaningful connection to be made? I'll go first. Uh, <coughs> um, maybe I'll just piggyback on what I just said. There's obviously a meaningful connection in the symbolism between a lamb being sacrificed um, to redeem and to, to rescue a child in the family, and then uh, Jesus acting as our lamb, as our sacrifice, as our sacrifice in our place, our substitute. Uh, so that, that we don't face that punishment. And so I think if you put yourself in the in the place of a uh, Israelite in you know 1400 BC, you know underneath the sky, and I'm sure there were you know you see in the movies there's like screams from the Egyptian family. I'm sure it was a really scary night, and you, they felt I'm sure both fear but also kind of provision and protection in their home because it was one of God's homes. They were people. And the blood of the spotless lamb was protecting them. And so I think that's a neat kind of meaningful analogy to where we sit. We sit in a place where God's judgment would rightfully be all around us and, and, and on us, if not for this opportunity or this offer to have Christ's blood cover us and protect us. said it's one of his miracles where it maintained the promise, the covenant mm-hmm. that we're about to talk about. Um, so that's, you know, it's, it's relevant in that sense. You know, it's, it's part of mm-hmm. our bigger story, which is where you, you start with this. It's the Bible Project's big point. is The Bible is a continuous story that starts with God and leads to Jesus. And, you know, I think that's lost. And so mm-hmm. it's relevant for that reason. Um, it's the time of Hanukkah right now, so I've got a lot of Jewish I think it's a neat connection, right? Because it should be as important to us as it is to them. Um, I know it, you know, Martin Luther King, uh, <coughs> his famous sermons talked about, you can kind of take, I guess you say, fig-
idea of what's happening here and swore that you can stretch mm-hmm. it to be like the justice, even the social justice aspect of the Jews versus the Egyptians. And you can, you know, I, I think that's not always the point that's being made literally, but I think there's, you know, the idea of overcoming and that's that's been used in a relevant sense, I guess. We could expand on that, but... Yeah, you think like a God's people who were slaves in Egypt in 1400 B.C. are God's people in the antebellum south that were serving as slaves. They, they had the same hope, which was that God would deliver, that God would um, redeem them. And of course those, those prayers aren't always answered immediately, but I think there's hope in saying that God has acted in history before to redeem His people who were enslaved or oppressed. And so for, for centuries, it, the, the Exodus has been preached that way. I think that's meaningful. Do you think there's been an Exodus in America for over the past hundred years that slaves have been free? Mm-hmm. And God has intervened in that way? You're saying, do I think God acted? I think so. I mean, I think, obviously, that question is like, very like what's my opinion but yeah I think God acted in the uh, in the injustice of American slavery and redeemed his people was faithful to them the my answer for this is uh, on top of what y'all said is like the I said that as part of him showing his power over creation and like what we've been discussing last week kind of our interpretation of like God and creation and mm-hmm. how Play that into all science, and like very early after creation, I guess in the timeline that I think of, like Genesis, Exodus, he either like showed like absolute power for creation and didn't make miracles with the mm-hmm. all that, and so it's not it wasn't like a thousand year evolution. It was him displaying like acts of power, like immediately took up like animals and creation. Yeah, so like how how do we interpret how he created them in the beginning if he has this power to? Unleash them like immediately on people. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a cool point that not only did he create it, you know, he could have created it and walked away or just like let it run its course. He's able to stand in the way and change it, sort of mm-hmm. subvert the science. So I, I like that the plagues start like kind of simple and then they build all the way up to something very serious. So he has control over every aspect of science and, and matter, and, mm-hmm. and lastly, like over basically like the soul and over life itself. So, yeah, I think it's kind of hard to read um, suburban mega church like God's the Santa Claus in the sky type feel. I mean, God is like He is in control. He is righteous in His wrath and anger. Is um is justified or, or um he doesn't he stands in judgment of his creation his creation doesn't stand in judgment of him I think that would be a, a huge theme of Exodus Pharaoh the you know the emperor of all the territory he had ever known has no right to judge how God deals with him or his people God is a creator. Okay, so let's look at the uh, next half of Exodus. I'm going to let the Bible Project guys uh, get us started.
chapters 1 through 18, which tell the foundational story of how God rescued the enslaved Israelites by confronting and defeating Pharaoh, while offering a way of escape through the blood of the Passover lamb. God then delivered his people by bringing them through the waters of the sea and then into the wilderness, where, surprisingly, they grumbled and complained. Now, the second half of the book of Exodus opens as Moses leads Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God invites the nation of Israel to enter into a covenant relationship. And here we reach another key moment in the biblical storyline, because this is picking up and developing God's promise to Abraham. So remember, from the book of Genesis, God promised that through Abraham's family, somehow he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And here we find out more. God says that if Israel obeys the terms of the covenant, they will be so shaped by God's laws and teaching and justice that they will become a kingdom of priests, which means that they will become God's representatives and show all of the other nations what God is truly like. Now the people of Israel eagerly accept the offer, and so God's presence appears right on the top of Mount Sinai in the form of cloud and lightning and thunder. And Moses goes up as their representative, and God opens with the basic terms of the covenant, the famous Ten Commandments. These are like the basic terms of the agreement, how the Israelites and God are going to relate to each other. And then after this come another collection of commands which fill out the first ten in more detail. There are laws about Israel's worship, about social justice, how they are to live together, all shaping Israel into a nation of justice and generosity that's different from the other nations. So Moses writes down all of these laws, and he brings them down to the people who, again, eagerly agree to enter into this covenant with God. And once they do so, God takes the relationship forward another step. He tells Moses that he wants his holy and divine and good presence to come and dwell right in the midst of Israel, which develops another aspect of God's covenant promises. So remember, after humanity's rebellion in the garden, it was access to God's presence that was lost. But now it's through the family of Abraham that God's presence is becoming once again accessible through this covenant relationship. And first with Israel, and then somehow, one day to all nations. So what follows are seven chapters of detailed architectural blueprints about this sacred tent called the tabernacle. There's an outer courtyard with an altar, and then in the center there's a tent that has an outer room and then an inner room. And then inside the inner room, which is called the most holy space, is a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And there's angelic creatures over the top of it. It's the hot spot of God's presence. Now there's lots of detail in these chapters, and it's important to know that every piece has some kind of symbolic value. All of the flowers, the angels, the gold, and the jewels, it all echoes back to the Garden of Eden, the place where God and humans live together in intimacy. And so the tabernacle is like a portable Eden, so to speak. It's the place where God and Israel can live together in peace. At least in theory, because right here, something goes really, really wrong. Israel breaks the covenant. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving the blueprints for the tabernacle, down below at the camp, the Israelites, they're losing patience. And so they ask Moses' brother Aaron to make for them a golden calf idol so they can worship it as the God who saved them out of slavery in Egypt. Now God's presence, it's right there on top of the mountain. They can see it. But here they are below, breaking the first two commands of the covenant they just agreed to. No other gods and no idols. Now what follows is really important. God knows what's happening down below. And so he first invites Moses into his own anger and pain. 
And he tells Moses what he wants to do, just to wipe Israel out. But Moses intercedes by appealing to God's character. He says, first of all, destroying Israel would be going back on your covenant promises to Abraham. And then Moses appeals to God's reputation among the nations. What would they think if they see you destroying your own people? And so God accepts Moses' intercession, and he relents. And while he does bring his judgment on those who instigated the idolatry, he forgives the nation as a whole and promises to renew his covenant. And it's right here, at this point in the story, that God, for the first time, describes his own character to Moses. He says, the Lord is merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, abounding in covenant faithfulness. He forgives sin, but he will not leave the wicked unpunished. So we have this tension. God is full of mercy, but also he must deal with evil if he claims to be good. And above all, God is faithful to his promises, even though it means, he knows, he's committing himself to a people who are utterly faithless. And so after renewing the covenant with Israel, God commissions Moses to go ahead and build the tabernacle. And once again, we get five long chapters describing in detail the construction of the tabernacle. And it all comes together in the final chapter, where the tabernacle's finished. God's glorious divine presence comes and hovers over the tent, and our hopes are high. And so Moses, he goes right up to enter into the tent, and he can't. He actually can't go in, and that's how the book ends. It's really surprising, but not really if you think about it. You can see now how much Israel's sin has damaged the relationship with God in more ways than we realize. So the book opened, remember, with Pharaoh's evil, threatening Israel and threatening God's covenant promise. But now, as the book ends, Israel has become its own worst enemy. It's their sin that's threatening the future of the covenant. And so the question, as the book closes, is how is God going to reconcile this conflict between his holiness and his goodness and his presence with the sinful corruption of his own covenant people? The solution to that problem is what the next book is about, but for now, that's the book of Exodus. All right. <coughs> the next book's a real uh, page turner, Leviticus. We'll talk about that in just a second. Okay, real quickly. Um, so Exodus 19 through 40. I think I kind of laid out, but you see so you got the covenant, which is like rules and words. They give the Ten Commandments. Then the covenant's confirmed. Then you get instructions for the tabernacle, which we're going to spend zero seconds on. But it's all there, like how to build this awesome tent. Then you've got the breach of the covenant. So he comes down from the mountain. They're building this golden calf, which is like just this total, you know, moral and theological disaster, right? They've like been been free, delivered across the Red Sea. Uh, Red Sea spreads for them, crushes the Egyptians. They get they walk across the Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain. Presence of God gives them the Ten Commandments. Comes down, and the Israelites are worshiping like a a golden cow. It's like holy cow. Like what in the world? Um, so, but then, then there's a renewal of the covenant. Moses goes and gets new Ten Commandments, and the um, Israelites promise to to not make an idol in five seconds this time. And then, so then they talk about the tabernacle and the this idea of preparation for the presence. So they're building this tabernacle in preparation of God's presence dwelling among them. Okay, so I just want to make a few points. The Ten Commandments represent a revolution in human thought and a brilliance toward the creation of ethical and moral societies. So I think this is really remarkable and something that we kind of go in stages. Sometimes we talk about the Ten Commandments a lot in culture, sometimes not much at all. But I think sometimes we miss out on 
the brilliance of what a society would look like if that society followed the Ten Commandments. And maybe we even miss how uh, beautiful and simple they are. So let's look at them real quick. Do not have any other gods before God. So Tim Keller's done a good job of this, but thinking about idols. So what are what are the things in your life that you commit idolatry to? Not necessarily an idol, but what do you put before God? So that's the sin of idolatry. Then, of course, the sin of idols and making an idol. I don't know that in our culture that we're making a bunch of idols, but I think we have a big problem with idolatry. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, that's a weird commandment to us because we don't think that's important because we don't live in kind of a holy culture. But I think it matters how we speak in our homes about God, and I think it matters to God, so it should matter to us. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Of course, Jesus changed how we understand this a little bit, but I, th- I think it's healthier for human life if you take some time to rest and reflect and worship. And, uh, man, if we took every Sunday we kind of put our phones down and didn't do business and spent some time with the people we loved, worshiping the God we love, I mean, how much healthier would our society be? Um, so maybe we should all do the Chick-fil-A rule, just shut her down on Sunday. Uh, honor your father and mother. I think that's, um, you know, a really cool thing, especially as, you know, I don't live with my parents anymore, but I think it's important that I, I show them honor. These are kind of obvious things we agree with this. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify or or bear false witness. Don't bear false witness. Um, and then do you not. Fear yeah, you should fear false witness. And do not covet. This is kind of weird when we don't talk about much. But how much time is wasted and sadness brought on and kind of emotional energy wasted, wishing that something in your life was like the life of your friend or neighbor. And so do not covet your neighbor's house or wife is the the specific commandment. But the idea, of course, is there's going to be people around you who have things in their life that are a little different or better than in your life. And don't spend time worrying and wishing that you had their life. That's a short way to uh, jealousy and hatefulness and wrath and really unhealthy emotional life. So do not covet. That's something we never talk about. But I think that will preach especially in the age of social media. Do not covet. I think that's a good one. So Dennis Prager said this. He's a political author and commentator. He said, The Ten Commandments are preoccupied with goodness. Each commandment is a moral tour de force. Together they present the most compelling plan ever devised for a better life and good world. Yet they were written, and in the eyes of hundreds of millions revealed by the Creator, 3,000 years ago. The commandments are what began humanity's long arduous journey towards moral progress. So we don't have time to really tell this story, but I think a story about Western civilization, they say, came out of um, Athens and Jerusalem and kind of how those two cities fit together to create a a moral and stable civilization. Um, But of course, the story of Jerusalem began right here at Mount Sinai, and there would be no Jerusalem without the Exodus and the Ten Commandments. Okay, so I want to talk about this real quick. I know we started late, and so we're running late. And I don't want to you know, be here too late, but I want to talk just briefly. What's the diff- So God made this covenant with His people. What's the difference in a covenant and a contract? If no one wants to say anything about this, then I, I can kind of answer it, but I think it's a good kind of conversation starter. Mm-hmm. Uh, like covenant is the law as or covenant is to 
Yeah, that's right. That's good. Yep, so a contract reveals the law, but a covenant reveals love. Yep. Well, it's sort of like a contract is legally binding and a covenant sort of like sort of spiritually binding or like emotionally mm-hmm. binding or something. It's the same difference, but yeah, you're not forced to hold to a covenant. Um, you're, you're sort of forced mm-hmm. to contract, I guess you could say. I, I think a good way to think about it, <clears throat> maybe not as good as those two ideas, those are good, good ways to think about it, but it's like in marriage. So Laura and I don't have a contract. We have a covenant. And um, so you think like a, a contract would be like, well, if Lauren, if um, <laughs> if you keep paying the rent, you can keep working in this office, right? So you have a contract, and then there's you know different ways to get out of the contract. But a covenant, I'm not I'm not really that interested. I mean, I want Lauren to uphold her end of of our covenant, right? But that's really not my primary focus. My primary focus is my love for her and how I express myself in the covenant, right? So um, I'm not going to throw the covenant away if I feel offended or slighted because it's it's a commitment I made with my whole self, not based on who, uh, what she was bringing to the table, right? So you have a, 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 a commitment that's beyond um, contractual, beyond legal. So, of course, the point here, both theologically and kind of morally in our lives, is Israel and us are like screwing up this contract. Like Moses literally didn't get off the mountain from receiving the contract, and they're already messing it up. Um, and so, thankfully for us, it wasn't a contract, right? And God's been faithful to the covenant despite his his people's um, rabid unfaithfulness all the way through. So maybe when we get to the book of Hosea, we'll talk about that a little bit. That's really what that book's about, is just um, God's people's just gross unfaithfulness to God and His incredible faithfulness in light of that. Okay, let's just kind of press on here to... Can I get those two blanks? Yeah, oh, I'm so sorry, man. Um, Two is, oh, so, yeah. The stubbornness of Israel's heart shows the difficulty we often have in walking the path of God. The path of God. So, So... the Israelites go out in the wilderness and they're complaining, right? And they want to go back to where they were before. Well, where they were before was like in slavery. And so God's taking them to someplace so much better. And really even where they are now is better than where they were. But the uncomfortableness and the strain of the path God calls us to sometimes makes us weary and want to quit instead of finishing through. And that's been the story since the beginning of God's people. And, so, and I know that story is a story that's true in my life. Okay, and then God's presence entering the Ark of the Covenant and Moses' inability to enter into the presence of God represent new epic themes that will span the remainder of Scripture. So this idea that God's presence is accessible, but we can't fully access Him because of our sin, because of our uncleanliness, because we aren't the proper sacrifice or properly qualified to access or have access to God and this and the solving of that question is is a theme for the rest of the Bible really is is present even in Revelation and so that 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 theme kind of starts right here they build this tent this tabernacle there's this most holy place and weirdly the hero of the whole story can't go in the most holy place at the end of um, at the end of Exodus which is what um, 
which is what Leviticus is all about. So we can watch this video. These posters are like here if you want it. It follows really well. Obviously, you can The book of Leviticus too. is the third book of the Bible, and it's set right after the exodus of the Israelites from their city. When God brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai and invited Israel into a covenant relationship. Now, they had quickly rebelled and broke that covenant. And God had wanted for his glorious presence to come and live right in the midst of Israel in the form of this tabernacle. But Israel's sin has damaged the relationship. So, at the end of the previous book, Exodus, Moses, as Israel's representative, could not even enter God's presence in the tent. The book of Leviticus opens by reminding us of this fundamental problem. It says, the Lord called to Moses from the tent. So the question is, how can Israel, in their sin and selfishness, be reconciled to this holy God? That's what this book is all about. How God is graciously providing a way for sinful, corrupt people to live in his holy presence. Now, let's pause for a second and explore this really important idea that God is holy. It's fundamental to understanding this book. The word holy means simply to be set apart or unique. And in the Bible, God is set apart from all other things because of his unique role as the creator of all, as the author of life itself. And so if God is holy, then the space around God is also holy. It's full of his goodness and his life and purity and justice. So if Israel, who is unjust and sinful, wants to live in God's holy presence, they too need to become holy. Their sin has to be dealt with. Thus, the book of Leviticus. Now, the book has a really amazing symmetrical design. It explores the three main ways that God helps Israel to live in his presence. The outer sections are descriptions of the rituals Israel is to practice in God's holy presence. The next inner sections focus on the role of Israel's priests as mediators between God and Israel. And inside of that are two matching sections that focus on Israel's purity. And then right here at the center of the book, there's a key ritual, the Day of Atonement, that brings the whole book together. The book concludes with a short section where Moses calls on Israel to be faithful to this covenant. Let's dive into the book. The first section explores the five main types of ritual sacrifices that Israel was to perform. Two of these were ways that an Israelite could say thank you to God by offering back to God these symbolic tokens of what God has first given them. Three other sacrifices were different ways of saying sorry to God. So here an Israelite would offer up the lifeblood of an animal while confessing that their sin has created more evil and death in God's good world. But instead of destroying this person, God, of course, wants to forgive them. And so this animal symbolically dies in their place and atones, which means it covers for their sin. And so through these rituals, the Israelites were constantly being reminded of God's grace, but also of his justice and of the seriousness of their evil and its consequences. The second set of rituals lays out the seven annual feasts of Israel. And each of these retold a different part of the story about how God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt and brought them through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And by celebrating these feasts regularly, Israel would remember who they were and who God was to them. Now the sections about Israel's priests, you have Aaron and his sons first ordained to enter into God's presence on behalf of Israel. And then in this matching section, we find the qualifications for being a priest. The priests were called to the highest level of moral integrity and ritual holiness because they represented the people before God, but then also represented God to the people. 
Now, we find out why the priest's holiness matters so much back here in this first section. Right after the family of Aaron was ordained, two of his sons waltz right into God's presence and flagrantly violate the rules. And so they are consumed by God's holiness on the spot. It's a haunting reminder of the paradox of living in God's holy presence. Because it's pure goodness, but it becomes dangerous to those who rebel and insult God's holiness. And so it's important that Israel's priests become holy, and also that all of the people of Israel become holy, which is what the next intersections are all about. Chapters 11 through 15 are about the ritual purity required of all the Israelites, and chapters 18 through 20 are about the moral purity of the people. Here's what's underneath all of this purity and impurity language. Because God is holy and he's set apart, the Israelites need to be in a state of holiness themselves when they enter into his presence. This was called being clean or pure. God's presence was off limits to anybody who was not in a holy state, and this was called being unclean or impure. Now, an Israelite could become impure in just a few ways, by contact with reproductive body fluids, by having a skin disease, by touching mold or fungus, or by touching a dead body. Now, for the Israelites, all of these were associated with mortality, with the loss of life, which gets us to the core symbol of all these ideas. You become impure when you're contaminated by touching death, so to speak. And death is the opposite of God's holiness, because God's essence is life. Now, this is really key. Simply being impure was not sinful or wrong. Touching these kinds of things was a normal part of everyday life. And impurity was a temporary state. It just lasted a week or two, and then it's over. What was wrong or sinful was to waltz into God's presence carrying these symbols of death and impurity on my body. Don't do that. Now, the last way of becoming impure was by eating certain animals. And the kosher food laws are found right here in this section. Now, there have been lots of theories about why certain animals were considered impure and off-limits. To promote hygiene or to avoid cultural taboos, the text just isn't explicit. But the basic point of all of these chapters is really clear. Altogether, these work as an elaborate set of cultural symbols that remind Israel that God's holiness was to affect all areas of their lives. This corresponding section over here is about Israel's moral purity. The Israelites were called to live differently than the Canaanites. They were to care for the poor instead of overlooking them. They were to have a high level of sexual integrity, and they were to promote justice throughout their entire land. Now here at the center of the book, we find a long description of one of Israel's annual feasts, the Day of Atonement. Odds are that not every Israelite's sin and rebellion would be covered through the individual sacrifices. And so once a year, the high priest would take two goats. One of these would become a purification offering and atone for the sins of the people. And the other was called the scapegoat. The priest would confess the sins of Israel and symbolically place them on this goat, and then it would be cast out into the wilderness. Again, this is a very powerful image of God's desire to remove sin and its consequences from his people so that God can live with them in peace. The book concludes with Moses calling Israel to be faithful to all of the terms of the covenant. And he describes the blessings of peace and abundance that will result if Israel obeys all of these laws. He also warns them that if they're unfaithful and dishonor God's holiness, it will result in disaster and ultimately exile from the land promised to Abraham. 
Now, if you want to see how Leviticus fits into the big storyline, it's helpful to look at the first sentence of the next book of the Bible, Numbers. It begins, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent. So we can see that Moses is now able to enter God's presence on behalf of Israel. The book of Leviticus, it worked. So despite Israel's failure, God has provided a way for their sin to be covered so that God can live with sinful people in peace. And that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. <coughs> all right, so Leviticus is admittedly a dry read. But the moral lesson of Leviticus is a profound one. Profound one. God is holy, and he takes the holiness of his people very seriously. So I think that is one of the themes of Scripture. God is holy. He takes the holiness of his people very seriously. So this is an idea that our culture cares almost zero about. It's about being holy, being set apart, being morally righteous, uh, that's just not, uh, you know, we're not, that's not going to be on like Fox News. I know it's fired up about those ideas. And so one of the, the things I think if you're going to be serious about the Bible is we have to, in every culture, you got to say, I'm going to try my best to conform the way I think about the world to what the Bible is teaching as opposed to try to judge and conform what the Bible's teaching to what I think. Right, and so one of the places where I think in our culture is going to really sharpen us is this idea of holiness. No one sits around wondering, is the holiness of God being defamed? No one is concerned about that. We're concerned about how can God justify His condemnation of my sin to me, and that's just not a question the Bible is is interested in, thinks it is important, is trying to answer. But the whole scope of scriptures trying to answer this question how can holy god be in the presence of sinners like us and um, that theme is i think you know really clear in leviticus this idea of holiness and uncleanness and how that fits together when reading leviticus as in all scripture it's important to read within the context and genre of the text so kyle talked about this uh in our Sunday school class a, a few weeks ago just the importance of understanding what you're reading in Scripture and interpreting it appropriately. But the, the, cleanness, the cleanness laws are not moral commands. So no, every once in a while, like, you know, your uh, Internet atheist type will get all fired up and say, well, why are you wearing uh, a shirt made of two different kinds of garments sewn together? Do you not want to, like, obey the Bible? And, of course, that, like, that misses the whole point of, like, what's going on there. So God is not commanding. Uh, his people to wear certain kinds of clothing because there's something immoral about wearing this type and moral about wearing this type. These are clean cleanliness commands meant to set his people, the Israelites, apart from other nations, right? So God's doing something different in Leviticus than he's doing in 2018 with creating um, holy people who are set apart from their surrounding culture. So God, for the purpose of salvation, is wanting to keep Israel separate and not have Israel integrate and become just one of the other nations, right? That's, that's why the intermarriage laws in, for Israel were so important because Israel must be preserved because God promised Abraham that all nations would be, preser would be blessed through his line. And so there must be a line of Abraham for Jesus to be born into 2,000 years later. So that's why uh, Israel has these specific commands to keep them different from their neighbors. 
So we do not live in a theocracy as ancient Israel did. And so the way that we would interpret and read these, these laws should be different than the way that um, you would interpret them if you lived underneath a theocratic government ruled literally by God who gave you the laws to live by. But, and this is important, the principles behind the teachings and commands are still applicable to us. So you'll see this, we'll maybe talk about this later in the New Testament, but there may be some examples, head coverings, a good example of this. So do we need to wear head coverings, or do women need to wear head coverings in worship today? I think no, they don't. That was a kind of a cultural command, but there's a principle behind the command that matters. And so the same thing is going on here in Leviticus. What's the principle behind? So the principle behind is God wants His people to be holy. And so which leads us to, I think, the question we want to talk about, which is... What does holiness look like in 2018? It's, it's been, uh, Breesha was bringing this up on Thursday. We had a practice for a Christmas show, and he had been studying. I can't remember who the sermon was through. I think Francis Chan, actually. It was Matthew 24, and it's saying something about how most or many will be unholy. Or I wish I could bring up the Bible, but it's on the podcast. Um, and then I was reading <coughs> one where it talks about how you know people list off some sins and says that God will give them over to their simple desires and um, just sort of this idea that if we seek holiness every day we find it more and more and if we seek you know unholiness or death more and more we, we find it more and more and uh, how you sort of see that culturally so I think what what our culture looks like in 2018 is increasingly given over to our sinful desires and increasingly and it says in Romans 1 not only will they be given over to their sin, but they'll, they'll, you know, encourage others to do the same. And it's like, well, that's exactly where we are right now. And you see it among Christians even doing that, that you're so used to death and what death looks like that you're excited about it and championing it, which is just so upside down. So it would be almost like if you had an Orthodox Jew who was, like, championing the eating of lobster <laughs> or of bats or whatever, you know, and it's like, that makes no sense whatsoever. And yet we're doing that with the things that we champion as Christians and that we're excited about and almost like wanting to be supportive of it. But we've been given over to, to what we want. And we've defined, you know, good and evil for ourselves and uh, it's disastrous. So it's just weird that certain things will kind of come up. So you have this lesson at the tail end of Romans 1 and Matthew 24, like talking about these same things and mm -hmm. kind of where we are culturally. It's, it's just interesting how that works. So I got I got to send this to Rishon. Say so read read Leviticus now. 
Well, I think there's a lot of um, kind of neat stuff in the Old Testament. We don't spend a lot of time in it. It's been really fun for me the past uh, couple of days, like reading Exodus, Leviticus, and thinking about I didn't read all every word of Leviticus, but read most of it. Um, but thinking about kind of how that applies to us and how we live that out, and I think it matters for two reasons. One is it, it's part of our story, so I, I don't we're not this kind of you know there's a heresy <coughs> for the um, early church this idea that they tried to separate the God of the Old Testament from the New Testament and say well you know it's kind of an anti-Semitic we're not Jewish we're Christians and that that of course is not our story we are a part of God's people that traces back to the the Exodus our people were enslaved underneath Egyptian rule at one time and God has delivered them and then has expanded that blessing and, and we're a part of that now and the second thing is, I think, this idea of, of holiness, that we're so often content um, to just be like everyone around us. In fact, maybe sometimes we want to be like our surrounding culture. And that has never been the ways of God. In fact, God would go to, to extremes and call His people to be really weird, do really weird stuff, just so that they're different and so they wouldn't accidentally blend in. So I'm not, I'm not necessarily calling us to be like, fundamentalist and weird and start acting culturally um, goofy, but um, I think there's a, a, a danger in being terrified of being weird, and it's okay if um, you know, maybe our daughters dress a little, a little more modest. It makes them a little not fashionable, but I think it's sending a signal about something that's a lot more important, and um, I think our, the way our sons and we would, would treat women and stuff should be different, and that's okay. And if they get teased for that, that's all right. We're, we're serving something more important. So be part of the story and, and be holy. I think that's Exodus and Leviticus. Thank you to David for teaching on the books of Exodus and Leviticus. He did an awesome job. I hope you were able to hear the video segments, and if you weren't, definitely recommend looking up uh, The Bible Project. Their videos are free on their website, or you can find them on YouTube also for free and uh, they have a tremendous amount of videos at this point probably somewhere around a hundred and uh, literally every video I've ever watched by them has been good um, so check those out if you weren't able to really hear it of course you weren't able to see it and so obviously watching those videos is a whole nother dimension and they're great and there's posters and books and I can't say enough good things about those guys and what they're doing and that, that ministry so that is it for tonight. Uh, we will be back next week. That will be the last podcast of 2018. We'll be uh, doing Numbers and Deuteronomy. So the two uh, probably lesser known, I guess, books of the Torah. And we'll go through those. And then from that point into 2019, we'll go into some other books. And man, so much to look forward to with the Old Testament. Hope you're having a wonderful week. Thanks for tuning in as always. If you're in Memphis on Monday nights, you're a medical dental or healthcare student. Come see us. Come spend some time with us. We're going to hope to kind of start afresh in 2019 and try and get some new people involved. And so if you're out there and you've been listening or someone's turned you on to this podcast, I would love to meet you. Come and be in person. It's always a lot better than listening on a podcast. I promise it'll be worth the effort to get out to us here in Germantown. So that's all I have for tonight, and uh, we will see you next time on the MD DDS podcast. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.